0: morning. morning, back to Genesis chapter 22, if you would start turning there, picking up in verse 15. Last week, we read the climax of the narrative of Abraham. We have finished the main point of the story. Now God is going to explain what has happened and why, and he is going to reaffirm his promises to Abraham as we now begin the transition to Isaac where we will leave things until our next foray into Genesis. I have told you before that my favorite psalm is Psalm 103. Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. I want you to forget not that word, this sermon, benefits. Benefits. David is blessing the Lord in response to the benefits of the Lord. In other words, David blesses the Lord for the blessings of the Lord. God's blessings are benefits. What are some of those benefits? Well, main one in that psalm, it says he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For a sinner like me, that's the best news in the world. But for our purposes, I've had verse 13 cycling through my head all week. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. You see, God knows us. He knows that we are but children. But he is a good and gracious and compassionate father. And what is one of the main things that a good, compassionate father does for his children. He speaks to them again and again and again. A good father, knowing that it is the nature of a child to be insecure and fearful, combats that weakness in part by repeated reassurances of his presence and his love for that child. So every day I tell my children multiple times, I love you over and over and over again. Every time I walk out the door, just in case, I love you. Right? My children need to know that their father loves them. I know, having been a child and still being an insecure and fearful adult, you are too, that my children need regular reminders of my love for them. I love you. I care for you. I'll protect you. They need repetition. They need reminders. They are prone to forget. They are prone to fear. So a good father must remind. Uh, Repetition is at the very heart of parenting. And as God chooses this metaphor in Psalm 103 to teach us something about the nature of our relationship with him, we can expect that he then will give us repeated reminders of his love and of his care for us. Because he knows our frame. He knows that we forget. You have forgotten this week. At some point in time this week, you have lived and acted. You have doubted. You have sinned. You have done these things because you have forgotten the nature of God and because you are very prone to forget the promises of God. And so here in Genesis 22, we again have a good father coming to us fearful, forgetful children, and reminding us of his good promises. The whole story of Abraham is ultimately about the promises of God. Did you catch how many times the word promises was repeated when we read Hebrews chapter 11 over and over and over again? And so Genesis 22, picking up in verse 15, is also then all about the reminding and reaffirmation of the promises of of God. That's clearly what verses 15 and 19 are about, and that shouldn't surprise us, as this is the conclusion to the climax of the Abraham narrative. We should expect that conclusion to be something about God's promises to his people, because that's what this whole story is about. But I also think that the more obscure verses... 20 through 24, you get excited, you get to watch me stumble through poor pronunciation in those verses. Those verses, as well as chapter 23, which we'll get to next week, are also all about the promises of God. So verses 20 and 24 anticipate chapter 24, and then you combine that with chapter 23. All of these then together are unpacking and explaining what God says to Abraham. In verses 15 through 19 of our chapter, which are God's promises to Abraham, which are then God's promises to us, to the children of Abraham. You know, what if you lived as if you actually believed all that God has revealed about himself? All that God has revealed about his grace and his perfect goodness. All that God has revealed about you and his love for you in Christ and what he has done for you and what he has promised to do for you. What if you actually lived as if all of that was actually true? Would it look differently than how you are living right now? I know that it would for me. You may think that you know the promises of God. But how successfully do you live in light of the promises of God? How often do you do things and doubt things that demonstrate that you are very quick to forget the promises of God? Well, let God remind you this morning of his good and gracious promises. His repetition is good. God repeats these promises to Abraham and to us again and again and again because he knows that we forget them again and again and again. So, this is the promise of God. This is His promise to you if you are in Christ. I got a little cute uh, with my outline. Uh, I'm taking our headings from the first three verses of the classic hymn Blessed Assurance. I came up with this too late to ask Andy to add uh, this hymn. Uh, first line Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. I want to look at our passage with just the first three words of that song Blessed. This whole thing is about the blessing of God. And I want us to see that God promises good to his people. If you are in Christ, that is God's promise to you. Assurance, then. God doesn't just promise that to you. He wants you to know. He wants you to be assured of his promise of good to you, which he does for Abraham here in this passage. Then how does he do all that. How does this good come? How does he assure his people of this goodness? Point number three is Jesus. God assures his people of his promise of good through his Son, which we'll see is ultimately what this passage is all about. That's ultimately what verses, strange verses 20 through 24 are all about. And so we'll get to those. So blessed assurance! God promises good to His people; He assures that, and then He secures that through Jesus Christ. That's that's where we're going. Let's let's read the text, Genesis chapter twenty-two. We're going to pick up in verse fifteen. I'll review after we read briefly the what's what's come before, um, but for the sake of time, let's start in verse fifteen, and I'll read to the end of the chapter. Pay attention, because this is what God wants to say to you today. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now after these things, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has born children to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, Buzz his brother Kimuel, the father of Aram, uh, Hesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milka bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Ruma, bore Tiba, Gahim, Tehash, and Maekah. If you would bow with me, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, apart from you, I can do nothing. Apart from you, we can do nothing. We ask that you now would help the preaching of your word. We ask that you would help the hearing of your word. Father, help me to faithfully explain your text and to boldly proclaim your glory. Father, help me to be clear. Father, help us all to hear and to understand and delight in you, and delight in your word. Father, we have given ourselves and our time to many things this week. We are great at giving our attention to many things. Father, help us to give attention now to you and to your word. Father, we need you to help us to do that. Convince us of the goodness of your self-revelation. Convince us the goodness of this word uh, written down uh, uh, 3,200 years ago, Lord, um, that is so relevant and so important for us today. This is ultimately about your son, Jesus Christ. So, yet we ask that you would show us Christ, arrest our attention with Christ, I'll glorify your name now through the preaching and the hearing of your word. We ask and we pray in the name of Jesus, Amen. Point number one a blessing, a blessed God promises good to his people. Verse 17, we see, I will surely bless you. Uh, I'm a big fan of words. I love playing around with words. I love playing with Greek words. Uh, My Greek is not very good, uh, but I get by with a little help from my friends. Uh, The Greek word for promise is epangelia. You hear the middle word there, the, the word angelos. That's just the Greek word for angel. And that word just literally in Greek means messenger. It comes from the Greek word, which means to announce. So an angel is simply one who speaks for God. It's one who announces God, God's word. It's his messenger. In Greek, then, a promise is just that word with a prefix thrown on the front of it. It's an epi-announcement. And that prefix sort of kind of acts to intensify or emphasize the main idea, the announcement. A promise is just an announcement from God. It is a word from God. And as we saw a while back, any word from God is as good as gold. Any word from God is a guarantee from God because he cannot do other than that which he has declared. But as I was playing around with this Greek word promised, I noticed that this word is used 52 times in the New Testament. But, this is interesting, about half of those word uses are clustered in four spots in the New Testament. They are clustered around Romans 4, Galatians 3 and 4, Hebrews 6, and what we just read in Hebrews 11. And you know what Romans 4, Galatians 3 or 4, and Hebrews 6 and 11 are all about? They're all about Abraham. And so, when Abraham comes up in the epistles, in the writings of Paul, and did Paul write Hebrews? I, I don't know, I think maybe he did, but I'm not sure. But when Abraham comes up in Paul's writings, it's generally in reference to promise. The point of Abraham... Is the promise of God, and so the point of the conclusion coming on the tails of the climax to the Abraham story must also then be about the promises of God, and God then must also want you to be about the promises of God and to again hear about the promises of God. Look, look briefly at the text. Look at what's above. Let's. Let's remind ourselves of our context and remember where we are. Look back at verse 2. Remember, God has just called and commanded Abraham in verse 2, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Your first response to that should be, what? Keep in mind our first point today. God promises good to his people. But here we see God commanding what appears to be nothing but bad. Kill your son, your only son, whom you love. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the inner turmoil as a father? Like any good father, Abraham loves his son. Abraham knows that at the very heart of what it means to be a father is to protect. Husbands, your job is to protect your wives, to protect your children, to love them and to lead them. Abraham loves his son. And so his good and fatherly instinct is to protect his son. And yet here is God, his heavenly father, telling him to kill his son. How can we say that God promises good to his people? Well, we saw how last time. We saw in verse one that God was testing Abraham. There was no actual risk here for the boy. This is less about the sacrifice of Isaac than it is about the sacrifice of Abraham. Would he listen? Would he obey? Would he give up what he earthly most loves for what he eternally most loves? Would Abraham sacrifice his own loves and, in so doing, his own life in worship to God? Because that's what we saw the nature of worship is. Worship is sacrifice. It is our right response to who God is. He is God. He's creator. He is life. He is everything. And as such, he is the most valuable thing. And so worship then is to ascribe to him that supreme value. It is to ascribe supreme worth to him. And so we do that not just by singing songs, but by living our entire lives for him and for his glory, because he is God and he is good And he then deserves it, and he is worth it. Romans 12, we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. See, Paul says sacrifice is worship. God's people are willing to give up everything to gain the thing. God's people recognize that God is of infinite and eternal value, and they then live their lives accordingly. They sacrifice that which is of lesser value to gain that which is of greater value. and So Abraham believes God. And we read in Hebrews 11, by faith, Abraham obeys. He gives up his son, not knowing how, but knowing who. Not knowing the specifics of the procedures of God, but trusting the specific promises of God. Because what did Abraham know? Well, he knew Genesis 17, 19. He knew that God had said, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant. And so Abraham trusts that clear word from God. He trusts that clear promise that God would establish his covenant with Isaac, which means that somehow and in some way, Isaac must live. And so Abraham trusts and obeys, for there's no other way. He raises the knife, but in verse 12, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And so God stays Abraham's hand. God provides the sacrifice. That's the main idea in verse 14. The Lord will provide. And so now in verse 15, the angel of the Lord comes and calls to Abraham a second time. Here's our first point and our main idea. At least get this. By myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. You see, there's the blessing. God promises good to his people. That's what a a blessing is. A blessing is simply a promise of good. We're going to sing it at the end. Everyone knows and loves the first verse of amazing grace, but some of the other verses don't get enough love. I love the fourth verse. The Lord has promised good to me. That's exactly what's happening here. That's exactly what God is doing for Abraham and thus all of us who are children of Abraham. The Lord has promised good to me. I will bless you. And this is simply a repetition of the very first thing God said to Abraham all the way back at the very beginning of the story in chapter 12, verse 2, where God said, Abraham, I will bless you. And so think about this. This is important. Think back not just to the beginning of the story of Abraham. Think back to the beginning of the story of everything. That's what Genesis is. We're coming close to the close of our time in the second part of Genesis, this book of beginnings. And we've tried to stress the importance of beginnings. Beginnings determine ends. What happens here at the beginning shapes and determines everything that follows. Well, in the beginning, what is the very first thing God does for man? The very first thing. He creates man, 127. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. It's the very next thing God does for man. After creating the very first thing that God does for mankind. Verse 28. And God blessed them. Creates them, and he blesses them. And God repeats this for us. He summarizes the creation of man in chapter 5 of Genesis Verses 1 and 2, this is the book of the generations of Adam who created man. He made him in the likeness of God, male and female. He created them and he blessed them. You see, it is the very design and it is the very intent and it is the very nature of God to bless his people. God created his people for the very purpose of blessing his people. God creates man. First thing that God does is God blesses man. And who are the main characters? main human characters, in the beginning of Genesis. Well, Adam and Eve, we've already seen them blessed. Well, next must be Noah, Genesis 9-1, and God blessed Noah and his sons. Well, then next must be Abraham, Genesis 12-2. I will bless you. So creation, he blesses, recreation, starting over with Noah, he blesses, recreation, spiritual creation, he starts over with Abraham, I will bless you. Bless you. Church, this is what God does for his people. Always. This is God's disposition towards his people. He is a compassionate heavenly father and it is his very nature to bless his people. He is always ultimately working for the good of his people. A couple of verses that confirm this. A couple of promises that I want you to write down and I want you as a child of God to take to heart, we must learn to find comfort and encouragement in God's Word. In Psalm 23, of course, I read it Friday at a funeral. Main idea you are with me, and that's that's the most important truth that you need to know. God is the shepherd of his sheep, and as such, he is present with his sheep, he is caring for his sheep. And what necessarily follows then, if the God of perfect goodness is with and for. His people. Verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. That's a quite a promise, church. You believe that? In Christ, here we have God's word guaranteeing, promising to you that everywhere you go from the rest for the rest of your life, goodness will follow you. Goodness and mercy. Uh, Two of our our favorite family that's not in this church is a couple of missionaries in Jackson Heights that we get along with and we spend a lot of time with. And they have two little girls the same age as Emma and Lila. And their names are Mercy and McKaylin. And so it's unfair for Emma that we have this surely goodness and mercy will follow. That's Lila's friend. So Emma's had to add surely goodness and mercy and McKaylin will follow all the days of my life. This this is a joke. But uh, the promise... It's wonderful. God says, here's this good thing. I'm going to do this good thing for you. I am your shepherd. I am with you. And because of that, goodness will follow you your entire life. What if you believe that? What about Psalm 73? I've been fairly obsessed with Psalm 73 lately. Uh, Verse 1 of Psalm 73 says, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That's an important truth in an important psalm. God is good to Israel, his people, that's us, by the way, that's the church, the people of God, Jew and Gentile together, united in Christ, and he qualifies, Asaph qualifies who he means by Israel there. Israel, those who are pure in heart. can't help but think of Matthew 5, 8 there. Blessed are the pure in heart. Why? for they will see God. Does that excite you? (laughs) That is the promise, the beatific vision, the promise of eternity of seeing God. Blessing equals seeing God. But it's only the pure in heart who see him, those who have been forgiven and cleansed by the grace of God. And if, back to Psalm 73, it is to them that God is good, It must then follow that God is not good to those who are not his people. Truly to Israel, God is good to those who are pure in heart. And that's what the whole rest of the psalm goes on to unpack. Asaph looks around. He's disturbed by all the earthly prosperity, uh, by all the ease of the wicked. He doesn't understand it. Is that a sign? Is this good? Is this a sign of God's blessing? Is God being good to the wicked? And he has a revelation. He understands. He goes to the sanctuary, the place of the presence of God, and he realizes, verse 18, God has set them in slippery places. See, Asaph understands Romans 1, God giving people over. He understands that these things that appear to be good are not actually good because of their end. Because for the wicked, whatever happens here, whatever you want to call it, its end is judgment and destruction. So, we should have a really good reason and be very careful about calling this thing that results in eternal judgment and destruction as good. Because this is not good. Um, are we going to call this good? Asaph says this all results in that. And so if we can rightly understand how God relates to the world fundamentally differently than God relates to his people, then it rightly raises the stakes. It is to Israel. It is to only his people that God is ultimately good. Psalm 73, one, truly, God is good to Israel. But church, that applies to you if, if you are in Christ. Psalm 84, 11, the Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Blessed is the one who trusts in you. There's so many other psalms that I had to cut them out and pull them out for the sake of time. There's so many more that we could see about the goodness of God given to his people. And so I'll finish this part. With, you know, the verse you know, but the verse that you struggle to truly believe. I think we so struggle with it, that they're like, oh, I'm tired of hearing that verse. Don't use that verse. Um, but I think it's in part because we don't actually believe it. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, and not for anyone else, for those who love God, all things work together for good in church what a promise that is that is a bedrock on which you can bank and on which you can build your life the point of abraham the point of the life of abraham is the promise of god this whole story and this passage in particular is here to rehearse and remind to repeat and reaffirm those life-giving promises that you are so prone to forget and that you fail to claim and to often live In light of church, you desperately need the promises of God. And we, as as humans, as people created in God's image, we are all by nature meaning makers. We're always interpreting, you are constantly both consciously and unconsciously you're you're looking around you you're examining your circumstances you're examining the events going on around you how you feel how you feel that things are going for you how you feel about what that person did and what they said what does that mean and and you're constantly interpreting those facts and then you are responding to them and you are acting in light of your interpretation of those facts. We are all of us constantly trying to make sense out of the world around us and out of what is happening to us. And if you try to do that apart from God's word, if you try to do that apart from his promises, it will, it will destroy you. It will make you miserable. If you take the world's word on things or your heart's word on things, you will die. Your greatest enemy is your own heart. My greatest enemy is my own heart, and how prone and quick and how, th- how, how I tend to start to listen to that little voice that starts to question and that starts to doubt and that starts to accuse. That is within me. I need God's word to be coming in and combating uh, the lies and the errors and the doubts and the fears that can come from within. The promises of God are his word on things. The promises of God are his take on reality, his take on you, his take on the circumstances around you and what is happening to you. The promises of God are the creator of the universe telling you the meaning of things and how you are to interpret them. And he tells you that if you are in Christ, then he is blessing you, and that he will bless you and that he is mysteriously but masterfully working all things together for your good. And that's a promise. You must learn to rest on the promise of God. Again, if all that thing is true, that hard thing that you're experiencing right now, whatever it is, no matter how hard it is, no matter how bad it seems, it falls under the influence of these verses. It must also then be something that God is using for your Again, here's why we don't define good in the same way that the world does. The world is obsessed with these uh, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years that we get, but what if eternity is actually a reality? What if what God is doing in these handful of decades is actually just about preparing us for eternity with him? Wait, I mean, how foolish would it be to obsess over and focus on this and to be upset and discouraged about this if all God is doing is with this light and momentary thing is preparing us for Eternal weight of glory. We just don't believe in eternity. We just don't. But God is using this to get us to that. The hard things of this can actually be called good because He's going to use it in some way to magnify and glorify and get you ready for that. He's making you like Himself. He's making you like Jesus. That's the promise. Good and glorious and holy and in relationship with Him. That's what God promises to do for his people. He has promised to do you good. And so you must learn to rest on the promises of God, to use the promises of God as pillows, as Spurgeon calls them. I love that. He tells you to lay your head down on the pillows of the promises of God. Listen to the metaphor that Spurgeon goes on to use to illustrate God's promises. I like this. Do you understand what they are? Here's how Spurgeon explains them. He says, a promise from God is like a check payable to order. It is given to the believer with the view of delivering to him some good thing. We're not meant to read it at our leisure and then forget about it. No, but we are to treat the promise as a reality as someone treats a check. Now, you get excited when somebody gives you a check, right? This is not just this tiny little piece of paper. Oh, this paper's worth a lot of money. It's worth what it represents. That's God's promise. It represents the thing that is Promised. He goes on, we are to take the promise and endorse it with our own name by personally receiving it as true. We are to accept it by faith as our own. We seal the deal by believing that God is true and true to this particular word of promise. We go further, believing that we have the blessing by having the sure promise of it. This done, we must present the promise to the Lord in faith. As someone presents a check at the counter of the bank, we must plead it by prayer, expecting to have it fulfilled. If we have come to heaven's bank at the right date, we will receive the promised amount at once. If the date should happen to be in the future, we must patiently wait until it arrives. But meanwhile, we may count the promise as money, for heaven's bank is sure to pay when the due time arrives. I find that a helpful metaphor. Think of the promises of God as checks guaranteeing you some good thing. Learn to then use those checks. Learn to use the promises of God. Learn to rehearse the promises of God. Learn to pray the promises of God. God promises good to his people. In this whole passage, God is promising to bless Abraham. Point number two. Blessed now assurance. Not only does God promise good to his people, God wants his people to be assured of his promises of good. God wants his people not only to know him, but to know that they know him. And more importantly, to know that they are known by him. Do you know that you know? Do you have the blessed assurance that Jesus is yours? You need that blessed assurance. You need to know that you know. A life lived constantly wandering and wondering is miserable. A life full of doubt often leads to a life full of despair. Are you assured that the promises of God are yours? One of the main things that we cannot miss from this big, long story of Abraham is that God wants his people to know his promises and be assured of his promises Chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 15, chapter 17, chapter 18, chapter 21, chapter 22. In all of them, God repeats his promises to Abraham. Let's go back to the text. We focused on verse 17. Look at it again. We focused on the main promise, the verb. I will surely bless you. But did you notice what is new about that? God has said, I will bless you, all the way back in chapter 12. But here, for the first time, he says, I will surely bless you. He has said that he would multiply Abraham's offspring all the way back in chapter 15. But here, for the first time, he says, I will surely multiply your offspring. This is something new. And this is something neat. Uh, The Hebrew is pretty fun here. It's clearer in the King James. There is no word surely there in the Hebrew. What's happening in the Hebrew is it literally takes the verbs for bless and multiply and it it multiplies them. It, It doubles them. It repeats them. So if you've got the King James, you'll see that it translates this verse in blessing, I will bless thee. And in multiplying, I will multiply thee. It's like blessing, I will bless. Multiplying, I will multiply. God is simply emphasizing and intensifying. It's like he's taking written promises and chiseling them into stone. And why? Why would he need to, to do that? Not because he is in any way untrustworthy. His word is his bond. He always does what he says. His word is promise. So why this guaranteeing? Why this doubling and addition of the, of the surely? Well, it's for us. Again, because he knows us. He knows how fearful and fickle his children are. He knows at some point today, after hearing this sermon about the promises of God's goodness to you, at some point today, you will forget the promise of God's goodness to you. And you will doubt and you will fear and you will sin. And so he doubles down and he assures, surely. But that's not even the best part. Look at verse 16. Look at how he introduces this. By myself, I have sworn declares the lord god swears an oath the god whose word is perfect and thus who never needs to swear an oath still does it and he does it for abraham and he does it for us what is an oath Uh, why do uh, people swear oaths well oaths exist because man is not trustworthy man's word is not Always man's bond. Man is prone to lies and deceit. And so an oath is a means by which man swears on something higher than himself, on God, and in so doing calls on God as final witness and judge of the truth of what has been promised. This is not the time, we don't have the time to get into a theology of oaths. All I want to point out here is simply the fact that it is only the sinfulness of man that would ever make an oath necessary. So since God is perfectly holy, it is never necessary for God to swear an oath. Because his word is already and always a guarantee just by the nature of who he is as God. But here he is, swearing an oath. Why? Again, for us. We've read Hebrews 11 already. I didn't know which one to read. Let's go to Hebrews 6. Flip to Hebrews chapter 6, page 104. Remember, promises are repeated in four main spots. Here's another one of them. Hebrews chapter 6. Look at verse 13. Verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. Why? Skip down to verse 17. Look at some of those words in that passage, some wonderful words, convincingly, unchangeable, guaranteed, unchangeable, impossible, strong encouragement, sure, steadfast anchor of the soul. God makes a promise and swears an oath because he desires to show you more convincingly the unchangeable character of his purpose. Guys, it's impossible for God to lie. He doesn't need to swear an oath, but he does. It's impossible for God to lie. And he has promised good to you. He's now guaranteed it with an oath. And this is a strong encouragement for you to cling to that hope. This is the sure and steady anchor of your soul. One commentator writes, this is the sheer anchor of the Christian's conviction. He knows his assurance depends not on the stability or strength of his faith, but on the absolute trustworthiness of God's There's where your assurance is found. In In the next part of the line from Amazing Grace that I quoted earlier, the Lord has promised good to me. His word, my hope, secures. His word, my hope, secures. So, this word, this promise, this oath, which the unchangeable, infallible God swears by Himself, that is where you find your assurance. He is where you find assurance. By myself, I have sworn, and it is impossible for God to lie. It is impossible for God not to do what he has said, and he has said that he will surely bless you. Christian, that's your assurance. That's how you know. This is the foundation of assurance. But I want you to notice something else interesting in the text. This should grab your attention. God has been affirming and reaffirming his promises since chapter 12, this is the first surely. This is the first swearing. Why? Context. It's because of what this follows. And we talked about it last week. Faith, in a very real sense, is obedience. We read it in Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed. Back to Genesis 22. Look at verse 16 again. I didn't read the whole verse that second time. Verse 16. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. Wait a second. What? Is that right? Maybe that's a typo. No, verse 18. Look at verse 18. In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you obeyed my voice. That's interesting. Blessed, main idea. But now we hear see specifically twice, blessed because. Because you have done this, verse 10, Abraham obeys, I am going to do this. Verse 17, bless. But wait a second. Hasn't God already promised all of these things to Abraham? Haven't we emphasized the absolute grace of God's call and God's promise to Abraham? He was a pagan worshiper of false gods until the one true God rescued him and delivered to him um, and promised to him what he was going to do for him. I will bless you. I will give you a son. I will give you a land. Yes and yes, of course, It's, it's, it's grace from beginning to end. But I tried, and probably somewhat failed, but tried back in chapter 17 to draw your attention to this. To draw your attention to something that I think we often miss. What I may be somewhat unnecessarily called conditions of the covenant. And look back at chapter 17, if you would like. Look at the end of verse 1 of chapter 17. These becauses shouldn't surprise us. The end of 17 verse 1 into verse 2. And there, God says to Abraham... Walk before me, you, Abraham, do this. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. You see that? That's the same thing as we have in 20 through 16 and 18. God says to Abraham, do this, that I may do this. Obey me, serve me, be blameless. Verse nine of chapter 17. As for you, you shall keep my covenant. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. See, God says, keep the covenant, be circumcised. And then in verse 14, he says, anyone who is not circumcised will be cut off. Anyone who is not cut off will be cut off out of the covenant. Those sound like conditions. And in our passage, Those becauses sound like conditions. Because you obeyed me, I will surely bless you. What's going on? Great things are going on. Grace things are going on. I've been trying to emphasize all along that God's love is so much better than unconditional. That God's covenant is so much better than an unconditional covenant. I don't think those are helpful adjectives attached to the word love and the word covenant. I think they actually limit God's love. Remember, God is holy. Not just holy. He is thrice holy as we see in Isaiah. He is holy. 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 He is perfectly righteous. And to be in relationship with a perfectly righteous God, you have to be perfectly righteous righteous he does not and he cannot change that it is impossible for god to lie his character is unchangeable he does not lower the bar it is not pass fail it's 100 percent, absolute perfection or you're out that's the condition god demands perfect righteousness to be in relationship with him that's what the law is all about the god or the law of god reveals the perfect righteousness of God, The law is a reflection of his perfect character, which is his perfect standard, which means uh, we must live up to that to be in relationship with him. We must be perfectly righteous. None is righteous. No, not one. We all of us fail to live up to, and so none of us are qualified to be in relationship with him. Church, the condition is perfect obedience. There's no way around it. To be in a relationship with God, the condition is perfect obedience. God commands that you obey him. God commands that you be perfect. And it is that fact, and the fact that he does not lower the bar and he does not change his standard that makes the good news of the gospel so good. Because here, then, is the bedrock assurance that we all need. God grants what God, commands. God gives what God requires. God grants what God commands. There are conditions in the covenant. Obedience is required. There is no salvation without obedience. We saw it last week. A faith always demonstrates itself in obedience. By faith Abraham obeyed. Jesus, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Obey. There is no relationship without obedience. There is no covenant without conditions. That's what makes God so good. That's what makes him so wonderful. And this, what he is doing here, so amazing. Because not only is the, he the condition making God, but he is also himself the condition meeting God. Yes, Abraham obeys. Yes, God says, because you obeyed me, I will do these things. But Abraham's obedience is nothing more than a response to God's grace. Abraham's obedience is nothing more than a result of God's grace. It's just Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 through 10. Right? We do 8 and 9 really well and we forget verse 10 really well. Gospel for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works so that no one may boast. But don't forget 10. Result of the gospel. Result Of grace, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Isn't that amazing? Look how big and comprehensive God's grace is. Yes, Abraham obeys, but all he is doing is walking in the good works that God himself has prepared for him to walk in. Abraham obeys because of the grace. Of God, And then this God is so good that he rewards Abraham for his obedience, which is itself only because of the grace of God. And it's all grace, but that grace works in us and through us. There is always an outworking of that grace, and it will always be an increasing obedience and walking in the good works which God prepared for us. So there is God's grace. There's Abraham's response into God's grace, which is a gift of God's grace. There's then Abraham's obedience in response to God's grace, which is a gift of grace. And then there's the reward, which is itself a gift of grace. Think about that. God rewards us for his grace, working in us and through us. That's how good he is. That's how committed he is to blessing you. He's going to bless the very thing that he is doing in you and through you, and yet you benefit from and you are rewarded for it. You are blessed because of his grace. Don't miss the main idea of the chapter. It's verse 14. The Lord will provide. And it is that comprehensive provision of grace, the swearing of an oath, and the the surely of the promise to bless that is the source of the assurance that you need. He wants you to know he will bless you, and so he says it, and then he swears it, And then he shows it. Point number three. I'll be quick and then I'll be done. What does God show us that provides us assurance? What does he show us in this text that provides us of his assurance? Point number three. God assures his people um, of his promise of good through his son. Look quickly at those strange last five verses. uh, 20 through 24. I butchered those names. What do we do with those? Why are those there? They seem like such an anticlimax after what we've just read. Why are they where they are, and what are they for? Good question. There's some debate about it. Um, some argue that it's simply to, to further draw a contrast. We, we've had all this drama. Isaac is spared. Abraham, father of a multitude. You still have one son. But after all that, you still only have one son. And here's your brother Nahor with his 12 sons. And so here again, it is not God's people looking and seeming pretty great in comparison to God's people. But remember, things are not always what they appear. It's 12 verse 1, but it's from this one that is going to come the one. Those 12 are out. This one is in. This is the line. This is the one through whom God will bring blessing. Don't trust your eyes. Don't look at things as the world does. I mean, I like that. I think that's pretty creative. I think that's possible. But I think the answer is... Far more simple. Isaac, the seed, the son, has been spared. Again, the son through whom the son will come. The son through whom the blessing of the nations will come. Isaac is alive. We've still got a problem. It is not good that the man should be alone. How is he going to multiply into nations and be a blessing to the nations by himself? Well, he can't. So why are these verses here? Verse 23 is why these verses are here. Rebecca is why these verses are here. We're going to spend a lot of time with Rebecca in chapter 24. But here, Isaac's future wife is introduced to set the stage for there. And introduced to emphasize what this whole thing has ultimately been about. God promises... God promises blessing. I will bless you, Abraham. Through through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. How? The seed. The whole Abraham story has been all about the seed. Look one last time at verse 17. God will bless Abraham by multiplying his offspring. But in the verse 17, here's something new. We haven't seen this yet. And your offspring... The word is, I think, intentionally ambiguous. It could be plural or singular. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. The ESV is interpreting it singularly. 18. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. What is that? What's going on? Now, of course... That is in part a reference to Israel's taking of the land of Canaan 400 years later. But how does that specifically bring blessing to the nations? I don't know. Kind of hard to say. But ultimately, as this whole story is, I think all this is, is a further unpacking of the original promise of grace from Genesis 3.15. What was that promise? It was a promise of a perpetual conflict between the serpent and the woman and their seed, between enemies. But there is hope because there is one to come. He, the seed, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I think that's ultimately what the seed possessing the enemy of his gates, uh, the, the gate of his enemies, fulfills. We are again being promised here victory through a seed to come. A son, the son that was to come from the line of Isaac, Jesus Christ, who will defeat All of our enemies. This whole thing is all about Abraham's son. His only son whom he loved. God has said kill him. Abraham obeyed but God spared the son. Abraham had some inkling of this. Verse 8. God will provide for himself the lamb. Verse 13. Behold a ram. Behold the lamb. And Abraham went and took the ram. And offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. And ultimately what the Lord provides is his own son whom he loves. His only son. He is the one that meets the condition for us. He is the one that perfectly obeys. He is the one that dies to pay our penalty for failing to keep God's law. And he, the seed, is offered up instead of us. You see, that's the gospel. God does for us what we could not do for ourselves. God provides for us what we could not provide for ourselves. He provides the payment for our sins that meets the condition for relationship with God. He provides the death so that we may live, and he provides the perfect righteousness that you have to have to be in relationship with God. You are not righteous, but Christ is. And by faith, we are counted as his. And his perfect righteousness is counted as ours. And so in God's eyes, I am counted as being perfectly righteous. It's not like, oh, you know, okay, your good's a little bit more than your bad, so I'll kind of, I'll let you in. No, I am counted perfectly righteous because of Jesus Christ. And this whole story is pointing us to him. And brothers and sisters, that's where you find assurance. That is the foundation of your assurance. Not in here, but out there in the promises of God and in the Son of God. You look to God's Word and you look to the Word made flesh and you look to the cross where that Word made flesh hangs there naked to die for wretched sinners like me. That's where God shows His love and proves His love. That is the fulfillment of His oath in the death of His own Son whom He loves. So look to Him. And live, trust him, and obey. God promises good to his people. God wants you. He wants his people to be assured of his promises of good. And God assures you of that promise of good through the sending of his own son, Jesus Christ. He is where you find your blessed assurance. Jesus is yours. And guys, Jesus, Jesus is everything. He is life itself. And so I pray that you would find your confidence and your hope and your joy and your everything in Him. If you would bow with me, let's let's close with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Father, it is such a privilege and responsibility to preach that word. Father, I pray that you would help my words. I pray that your word would be uh, what is fixed in our hearts and our minds. I pray that you would uh, convince us of the truth of your word. I pray that you would convince us of the beauty of your word. I pray that you would show us your Son, Jesus Christ, uh, through this wonderful word of life. Father, we thank you that you have done for us that which we could have never done for ourselves. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, and you have revealed yourself to us as the God who promises to bless his people and to do good for his people. Father, forgive us for our sin of disbelief. Forgive us for our sin of doubt when we look around and we question your goodness when you have revealed to us so clearly that you are good. If you did not um, spare your own son, Father, how will you not also with him give us all things? So, Father, help us to look to the cross and look to Jesus, where we can find assurance of your uh, benevolence towards us. And I pray that as we go into this week, we would go remembering your promises and resting in your promises and the lighting and the good that you have promised for us and that you have secured for us in your son, Jesus Christ. We ask and we pray all of us in his name. Amen.